Nigel, your nature. Uh, let's start with the show. What is your nature? What 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 was the spark for that work, and and why now in terms of exhibiting for the first time? Um, it's not the first time I've exhibited. Oh, right. By any means, but um, your nature was kind of an appeal to the public in a way to have a look at the nature on their doorsteps. Um, because I have a belief that if you don't have an engagement with your immediate environment, you don't really sort of, you won't take on the bigger picture. So it's nice for people to see the the majesty, the the glory of, you know, the immediate nature that they've got access to if they really, you know, want to care to look and take the time. So your nature to preserve an ephemeral state was an appeal to people to have a look at their locality, to have a look at their nature and have that urge to think, wow, this is special, you know, I really would like to care for it, to preserve it. Um, And always with my nature photography, I'm looking to kind of put a slant on it and make it as almost as beautiful as possible. Yeah, because we're so used to seeing exotic wildlife, aren't we? And, you know, wildlife that's kind of alien to our everyday and you know it'd be quite it'd be much easier for me to go over to I don't know Africa or something to photograph exotic animals and people go wow look at that you know but to find that nature on your doorstep and to give it a beauty that resonates with people that would hopefully engage them you know to have a look at their own nature and um, thinking wow that is there you know there's something there to preserve to preserve it's such a difficult thing to get people to engage with there's so many things distracting people from engagement with their environment now Mm. you know there's Mm. phones tablets social media um you know children are barely leaving their houses to Mm. explore Mm. the countryside and as a child growing up i had unfettered access to the countryside you know it wasn't governed in any kind of way so I was perpetually exploring the woods the rivers you know the fields with my brothers and building dens and swimming in the rivers wild swimming they would call it you know but yeah we did it naturally you know up in the Cambria mountains in the wash pools and in the local rivers you know, on the Y in the Irvon as a child I remember getting those kind of almost meditative moments you know, around nature. If I was ever feeling unsettled by something, I would immediately take myself down to the river and feel myself slipping into this state of mind, which was just taken away from stress, woes or worries or whatever that was going on at the time. I think that's very much what has made me come round to this exhibition, Your Nature. So that was a one interesting format, one night only. It was one night only. You had some support from sponsors. Uh, I think the guys, it was at Davies Colour. Davies Colour sponsored the exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, Wales Wildlife Trust, I donated 5% to them and 5% to Friends of the Earth Cymru. Right. Um, which... And Jacob's Market was the venue for, yeah. the, for the evening show. Yeah. There was absolutely no point doing it for longer than one night in a venue like Jacob's Market because it has no footfall. So for me to have been in attendance for a whole month Mm. or even a week or two weeks at somewhere like Jacob's Market, um, 
would have been such a big time drain. Mm. Um, so I thought, make it a one-night thing. The space is a lovely space. Um, but to get those venues in Cardiff to exhibit photography, which has the footfall, which has attendance, um, is a very difficult thing to get hold of against cost. Mm. Um, I mean, the cost of Jacob's Market for one night was reasonable. Whereas to get that elsewhere in Cardiff, very, very difficult to do because mm. selling photography or art in Wales is not an easy thing to do. Mm. Um, and there's not many pop-up spaces. The whole pop-up culture is becoming more prevalent. Yeah, you've got places like Arcade, Cardiff and things. And there's a few new venues, but they're not prolific considering we're a, a, a capital city. But the amazing thing about the exhibition was it reminded me how people really engage with the physical print. Mm. So much more so than seeing it on a computer or seeing it on a tablet or seeing it on a phone. Yeah, they, they were printed on this beautiful Hanamula bamboo fine art paper, um, sustainably sourced, which was, you know, very important to me especially considering you know, I was promoting Frenzy of the Other Cymru and Wales Wildlife Trust at the same time. Mm. Um, and the public that came, they were just wowed by the physicality of the prints. You know, it's got a beautiful matte finish, mm. the paper. And I've exhibited other works in the past and done lots of direct sales to the public, but in different forms of arts. You know, I've been self-employed within the arts ever since I left art college. This year, I think it's really well next year it's, it's taken me back to that sense where I think I really need to go out and do more direct sales you know whether they're art fairs or designer craft fairs uh, on that point how did the because you have recently uh, did the um, the market down by the, the Riverside. Riverside market yes. we did it last year as under the banner of the Roundhouse partnership and that's our partnership is 17 people who have land and we're doing sustainable agricultural practice. We also have six and a half acres of woodland where we're meant to be doing a woodland forest garden. Um, so that's a bunch of people that bought shares in those pieces of land. And there's artists involved, there's environmentalists involved. Um, and so we have a stand called the Roundhouse Partnership, which we did for the first time last year at the Riverside Market, simply to raise funds for the Roundhouse Partnership. So 25% of the sales of my prints will go to the Roundhouse Partnership. In that mix of other stalls that are on those markets, how have those print sales well, and Chris gone? Christmas-wise, yeah, people are looking for something a bit different, a bit accessible. And um, my small prints, price-wise, they're very accessible. I'm not here to do sales by any means. Go on, but, uh, pump it, Nigel. <laughs> um, well, you know, the, I've always believed as a business person, you know, you at least try to work out 100% margin for yourself, which is not unreasonable by any means. Um, and the print sales of the small prints, yeah, they're £14 a piece. They're on a backing card, they're wrapped up. Mm. It's an extremely accessible price. Yeah, and for somewhere like the Riverside Market, you know, people aren't going down there with rucks of money. You know, generally they're looking to buy food or um, the odd gift item. Um, and the prints really went well last year. Um, 
I mean, it would be, it'd be interesting to get your take. We've had this discussion recently with someone, and, and I think it's part of a bigger discussion about um, good photography, you know, high quality photography, being made accessible um, at an attractive price. <clears throat> but um, we're a picky bunch artists and photographers and the, the way that work is displayed beyond the mount the temptation is to frame it the way you want it framed and then of course put that up for sale and of course that by the time you're trying to reclaw those costs it puts many people off so selling just in mounts or, or, or a matted frame a print are you finding that successful is that is that, is that the route forward for you well with your nature exhibition the prints were 65 pounds and you know they were at least a a one size on mm. and a, a very good paper. Mm. Um, that's not a big price for that kind of print. Mm. Um, if I was to put a frame on it, um, you would be talking at least another sixty pounds on top of that. Uh, so you know if you were to put that on a gallery, you're looking to add another forty sixty percent. So yeah, your end cost to the customer is somewhere between 250 300 pounds a picture whereas to go to an exhibition where i simply bulldog clipped them displayed them very graphically i'm from a typography graphics background um, we set the show up in the day it looked yeah i was very pleased with how it looked mm. but i've done lots of exhibitions in the past so that wasn't alien to me whatsoever but it was the, a big consideration to make that price accessible mm. Um, I mean, I made 17 sales that evening. Wow. Um, and you had a great turnout by the looks of a the very good turnout. A very yeah. good turnout. Um, but interestingly, it was mostly my Facebook social media side of things that right. I had the turnout from. Uh, there was a few people on Twitter that came along. One chap came all the way from Pontypridd, you know, which was lovely for a one-night show. You know, I was very flattered by that. But interestingly enough, there was a lot of my friendship support that came from it. You know, um, I put flyers out all over Cardiff in hotels and, car, you know, and cafes and um, because I think you're a fool to rely just on social media. You know, the traditional ways of marketing you know, should not be neglected. I would say, you know, 85% was through my Facebook friends as such that turned up. But again, it's that whole thing of when, when you exhibit something in context in an art gallery format, the engagement is just so different. People were wowed. Wow. You know, I hadn't quite seen you work like this. You know, it's, it's a very, very different thing. And when I went to the printers to pick up the, the prints um, and to sign and edition them, I had the same response to the print because I hadn't seen my photographs printed on that kind of paper um, probably ever actually because I hadn't no I hadn't gone to that scale or to that quality of paper as yet and uh, I was wowed by them you know it's just not the same on yeah. a screen you know it's that classic thing isn't it of photo albums you know, your engagement with photo albums yeah rather than looking at things on a computer it's so different you know my dad was a, a keen photographer and um, we were forever poring over photos in the albums. And whenever we go back home, one of the first things you did was get out of the family album and have a laugh and have a nosy at them. And uh, But nobody keeps those albums anymore. You know, it's a great shame. So that early, I guess, defining period in your life, that, that growing up in both, 
did you follow your father in terms of the photography then or was it the art side that kicked in for you first? It was the art side that kicked in first. At the age of 10, I won an art competition. It was the Eisteddfod Art Competition. And uh, I was always chosen to do the school ball displays for painting and pictures and stuff like that. So like any kid, you know, when you're getting pat, patted on the back for doing something well, you respond to it. And, um, and from that age of 10 onwards, all I ever envisaged myself doing was creating or doing art. And that is pretty much all I ever did, sometimes at the expense of the other areas. I applied to do a foundation at 16 in Cardiff um, because I, my brothers had left. I felt quite mature at that age because we had so much freedom and someone like Belf, you know, you didn't just socialise with your own age group, you know, you were in the pub at a young age, you know, communicating with all sorts of age groups. So it was quite a, it was quite an education in somewhere like rural Wales, market towns, you know, there's, there's a real community sort of parenting that went on. So you, you spent a lot of time with large age groups, different age groups. And um, so by the time I was 16, I felt ready to leave, mm. you know. I was, and someone like Bill becomes a bit of a microcosm also as well, because, you know, you can't fart, basically, <laughs> without somebody knowing what mm. you've been up to. Um, so I applied to Cardiff at 16, but they wouldn't take applicants until they were 17. But nobody told me I could have done a two-year BTEC in Swansea. Yeah, um, in the within art um, at the age of sixteen, because the kind of arts education again of someone like Bill wasn't particularly comprehensive by any means, and um, so I ended up by hanging out for two years in till I was eighteen until I could get onto the foundation in Cardiff. Where was that based? Howard time? Gardens Howard, at the time. Oh, the old site. Yeah. yeah, it was the old site, um, but a very fine art foundation. Um, and to be released into that atmosphere for the first time after Belf. Yeah, I had an amazing year. My first year in Cardiff, it was just absolutely brilliant. But the trouble is with that one year foundation, we all know there's so many different aspects to art. And um, to try and work out within that first six months what area you want to specialise in. Because the first division is between fine art and graphics. Mm. So, I mean, the trouble is, uh, at the time, I felt as though I had to justify my arts vocation. I mean, yeah, my family was very science medical background, so I kind of felt as though I had to justify or fund at least what I was doing, even though in those days you had a full grant, you know, amazingly lucky. So I ended up by doing graphics. Not that I was disinterested in graphics. I really appreciate design. Um, and I hadn't fully thought about the fact that also within graphics, there was photography. Um, and by then I had my own camera, I had a Pentax P30 at the time. But photography wasn't my mainstay, it wasn't. You know, I could, I, my portfolio that got me into my foundation was very much an illustrative fine art painting portfolio. Um, quite wacky, quite <laughs> experimental. Um, but I think someone like Cardiff, especially Howard Gardens, was looking for those kind of portfolios at the time. They weren't looking for the very illustrative, tight aspects of art. Um, 
Well, foundation is very much about experimentation. Well, foundation is about ripping apart your education up to that point. Mm. You know, so much of our creativity is removed from us within the traditional education of O level, A level. Um, Your foundation is about stripping that back down Mm. and getting you to almost rediscover your nurture your nature type art expression you know my children are very creative I don't intervene whatsoever to educate what they're doing because I love their freedom so many people try to recapture their naive art you know later on in life you know why take it away in the first place you know that's that kind of that's what I wonder about sometimes so what was the prompt then starting at Howard Gardens to buy that first camera was that to inform I had some it of your before, sketchbook I had or? it before ah, I right. had it before I went to foundation it was simply to document record my wanderings in mid Wales right um, yeah I didn't use it enough I don't think at the time but I think again it's with the influence of my father and seeing his, his portraiture of us as children mm. um, that's where the kind of urge to photograph people came from the nature side very much more my upbringing within that environment. But then my foundation then took me to graphics and I ended up in Exeter and I did a three-year degree in Exeter. And um, But it was a photography, illustration, typography in your first year and then you specialised in the second year. So I then did that commercial choice. I, I chose typography as my specialisation in the second year. But in the first year you learned black and white printing, you learned colour printing within photography. And the photography side of it appealed to me loads more than the typography side did. And so did the illustration side appeal to me a lot more than the typography side. But still, I went down the typography side, which was slightly mad. But it was that kind of, I don't know, having to justify your education almost. You so know. you had that commercial spark in the back of your mind? Um, it was About what you were going to come out of, the merge as? I wasn't. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a commercial spark. It was more an obligation, mm-hmm. more of a you know a justification of what I was doing to my family that you could actually make money out of being an artist. So it was a compromise. If I was, if I'd been true to myself at the time, I possibly would have done fine art at that age and gone down the fine art avenue. And may possibly, if I'd then gone on to do a fine art degree, I possibly would have ended up in fine art photography. So I ended. I did the three-year degree down there, and um, oh, the tutors. I'm sorry, it was just you know so divorced from you know the actual marketplace, um, and you would always get so much more from visiting lecturers or the third-year students that you socialised with, seeing what they were doing, you know. There was so much more to be got there. And sometimes the technicians. And often the, te- and often the technicians. Mm. But typography in, in Exeter was extremely traditional, extremely traditional, which was a fantastic education in itself. And I wouldn't take away any of that because, mm. you know, I have a good design sense, you know, the, the publicity for my show recently, you know, that was designed by myself and... You know that wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to do that unless it had been for that education. So were you getting hands on with letterpress? Yes, the old ways. hot metal press. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Physical type. Has that informed or 
any stirrings in your loins to look at analog photography, or do you do analog photography? No. Do you shoot film? No. No. Any no. interest? No. No at all. Um, mainly, again, on my first year in my degree when we did photography, I hated the darkroom, hated chemicals, hated being enclosed in that space with that heavy scent. Now, some people really have an engagement with that. It didn't resonate with me whatsoever. I like open spaces. I like being out taking photographs. I appreciate the kind of re revealing of a print and to discover what you had there. But, uh, I mean, especially retrospectively-wise, I mean, environmentally-wise, the whole film side of things and the chemical side of things, possibly oh, not yes. a very great thing. Um, but, um, yeah, no, that heady, chemically smell in a darkened room when the sun was shining outside didn't particularly appeal to me. I often think, actually, that, yeah, I would have been much better, like a lot of people, I would have been much better off doing my degree when I was about 27. Yeah, I think people appreciate do... Appreciate it more. Yeah, people do degrees too early, too young. It's too young to kind of realise what it is that really floats your boat. And I probably possibly would have made different decisions about what different areas of art to go into. Um, but, you know, I came out with a good general design sense around illustration, typography and photography, which was all very useful later. And then went straight into self-employment, running a, um, a designer crafts business. Yeah, I've always been a maker, physical painter, you know, I, would, I was making great big sculptural ornate automata yeah i probably made about 15 of them at one stage exhib exhibited them in galleries sold every single one of them they weren't cheap they were around about 750 up to over a thousand pounds had a few commissions which i did for public spaces they were great but um slowly it, we made the mistake then of going into trying to mechanize that business and mass produce small elements to make them accessible for people. Now, re again, retrospectively, I would always advise artists, either if you're going to do the mass production side, make sure that you're not doing all that work. Um, or the other end is go for the high end of the market and make sure you're in places which can command those high-end prices. You know, proper galleries in, has to be affluent areas generally where people are gonna afford it. Um, but don't sit in the middle when you're trying to do everything yourself. It's a real mistake. Um, so a part, as a part of that craft business, we, we did greetings cards. Um, we ended up by becoming a greetings card publisher, spent probably six, seven years as a greeting card publisher. Two of us from a terraced house in Canton ended up by being one of the biggest greetings card publishers in Wales. Um, we had agents all over Britain. We exported to America and Australia. Um, and we did a really good turnover and that's what afforded us to buy a house, have a family, blah, blah, blah. And what was the emphasis on the design of the subject matter? Those Handcrafted il children's illustrations because my partner was um, a children's book illustrator. That's yeah. what she came out of a, a course with. And um, so she would do the designs. I did the business side. But then rapidly I became a business person. <laughs> I was uh, basically an accounts manager, uh, procurement, sales, the whole caboodle. Yeah. 
that involves selling anything, dealing with agents at night, keeping tabs on them. Yeah, basically an accounts manager. Um, but it was a necessity at the time, mm. you know, to make money. Um, and it did make us, you know, a t- tidy enough amount to be able to buy a house in Canton. Mm. But luckily it was in that period where house prices hadn't gone sky high and yeah. the chapter effect hadn't happened on Canton quite as yet, um, which it did very rapidly after we bought our first house there. But then we had a first child and I didn't want to be a businessman. I, you know, I'd, I'd put my creativity to one side, you know. And also my partner that was then, um, we speculated that she would get a lot more work from the children's book stuff. So we dropped that business on its best ever turnover. I chose to drop it on its best ever turnover because if we'd taken it to the next year, we possibly could have lost a lot of that profit because we weren't putting enough into that business to keep it rolling as such. Um, so, you know, made an executive decision for us both to focus one on the family and two so she could explore the um, children's book side of things um which did she got a brilliant contract after that with really good advances um and then i did the full-time parenting for four years i think which you know i willingly did because i never wanted to have children to do that farming out you know Mm. aspect of things um i didn't see a lot of my father as a child saw a lot more of my mum because he was always out on call the old school gps that Mm. really did do a virtual seven hour seven day week you know on call every hour so did the full-time parenting thing which was it's not about you is it full-time parenting (laughs) it's purely about the children um ideally it should be about your lovely engagement and all the rest of it and i would not take anything away from that i wouldn't change it for the world but um, so how often was the camera picked up during that? That's time? when the camera came back into yeah. it. And I've heard this said before from other people. And um, It happened with me. Yeah, it mm. was the, but the, it was almost that, you know, it took me back to where my dad, dad's big part of his engagement was filming us on his cine camera right, right, yeah. and also taking photographs of us. And, you know, he had a light meter, a handheld light meter and all the works, you know. So that's when the camera came back in. And I would do really short 30-second videos of kind of those moments of new motor skills and things like that of your child, you know, and handheld filming. And it was, you know, in some ways, I'd love to show those videos again in almost in an art context. You know. Or stills from them. Or stills from them. But it was, no, it was more the, it was the film I really yeah. liked mm-hmm. and not so much the stills. But yes, and then the still sides of photographing the children really brought me back to photography again. And it was my creative outlet to go alongside the full-time parenting that really brought me back to photography. And I hadn't pinpointed at that point which area of art I wanted to concentrate on or got the most out of. And um, I've always had that white white paper phobia yeah, you've got a blank piece of canvas in front of you or a piece of white paper and it's like that initial mark, what am I going to fill this space with? It's quite 
quite intimidating in some ways. And with photography, it just reminded me that, you know, and also with the ability to post-edit these days on a computer, that white paper aspect was totally removed. But, but again, during that period, I was also creating digital print work. Um, I did a two series, which I exhibited loads. Um, one, one series was called One Seed. The other series was called Two Earth. And it was the very much the infernal moments of um, of seeds and engagements and how they fell and how they moved. And I was making massive constructions in Photoshop of seven hundred layers, you know, great big, you know, ha again printed on Halloween of fine art paper, digital print work. And I sold quite a lot of those pieces, and they got they were very well received. What was the content? Was that illustrative or was that photography? Initially photographed, macro photograph, and then taken into Photoshop and created layers. So it was very much the transition of seeds, the movements. Right. I reconstructed the fall of the sycamore seed mm -hmm. um, in Photoshop, um, which was a bonkers thing to do. It probably would have been much easier to have filmed it, but it wouldn't have been the same thing. It was just a perfect column of a sycamore seed falling vertically down, which they don't do in nature. They wander all over the place, of course. Um, so I quickly realised that, you know, it almost appealed too much to me in the way that I could lose myself in hours of just tweak, 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 you know. Mm. Um, so I kind of went away from that because it was too exhaustive. It, it, I, and it, going back to the photography with the children, I became to appreciate, I, I loved the instantaneousness of photography. And um, that's where it really kicked back in to picking up the camera. Now, that's a nice link into then the other side of, which, which I think is um, equally as nice in your portfolio as the social documentary work, particularly in this local area of um, Canton um, in South Wales. Are you comfortable with people? In amongst crowds, obviously some of the work is around oh, the activists and the... and the 100% comfortable. Yeah. Um, and the social documentary, especially the kind of um, the activist side of things, I don't really want to direct people into poses, positions, places. Mm. Uh, I much prefer being that fly in the wall. Um, there's... I love to try and spot those things that other people don't spot, those glances, those exchanges of looks. Um, and there was a big part of that work where I'm looking to isolate the individual. Quite often I use a very shallow depth of field, you know, um, with my 105 lens, yeah. Quite often with those shoots, I wouldn't go above 2.8, you know because I just wanted to pluck out individuals and their place within that moment. Yeah, it's that celebration of individuals that have come together over a cause because they believe in it strong enough to motivate themselves to get out of their houses, to go and say, this is not right. Um, so I, be I became very interested in, in just that individual's actions, what drove them to, to be there. And when you look at those photographs, personally, I get a sense of that individual person in that time and moments and why they were there. 
Um, but as a series, in terms of some of the work of the events that you have followed, you, you give that context, I think, as well, that we referred to earlier. It's funny, this context word came up yesterday as we were doing another interview. And it is so important, isn't it? An individual photograph plonked on a print on a wall is an aesthetic thing. It's, it's yeah. fine. As part of a set or as a series, they become much stronger, don't they, in some ways? Which I, hence is the temptation, I guess, to get into publishing um, work or exhibit, as you have done um, with the recent show. I think the the social documentary side of things, because I would like to do a lot more documentary-style photography, um, but I want it to be very much tied into the social um, or environmental side mm. of documentation. Um, do you think I, that's been covered well enough in Wales, strongly enough, other um, than just the normal jobbing press PR guys grabbing an event? Um, well, that is what generally happens, mm. you know, and trying to persuade the environmental organisations that quality, strong imagery mm. can speak a thousand words, um, especially when, again, social media eats imagery it mm. eats information you're lucky if somebody skim reads an article or even reads it at all you know so sometimes if you have a strong image and maybe and they call them memes these days you know you put a few words over the top of that image you know you can convey a message so much more concisely and quickly um, than trying to rely on a blog uh, or the traditional written word, yeah. Um, and it's persuading people, the environmental organisations, the um, third sector organisations, um, the charities, that when they get the budgets in the beginning to allow for photography to be within that budget, because it's vital. Yeah, it can do so much for the promotion of their organisations or their causes or their or what it is they're trying to engage the public in. Um, are they listening? Slowly, they are. Mm. And, you know, I'm getting more work down those avenues. And it's interesting, actually, because a few of the organisations, um, I've noticed that, you know, their comms officers, a couple of them are turning out to be photographers as well. I think that's becoming more and more common. Yes, I think it is. and But I've been hugely disadvantaged in that sense because you need to be able to, you should be a Welsh speaker as well. Because a lot of those organisations want their Twitter, their Facebooks bilingually communicated. Completely fair enough, you know. Um, I, I, yeah, it was important for me when I promoted your nature that one side was Welsh, one side was English. I did the same when I ran the Canton Green Party um, campaign in 2011. All my newspaper uh, newsletters were done both bilingually. Yeah, that's how it should be done. Um, but it is probably time for a reflection, I think, in, in Wales, I think, observing as a Scotsman. Um, <clears throat> but I've been down here for about 26 years. Uh, I think finding that perfect person in today's communication, visual communication field, who is the perfect videographer, 
perfect blog writer, perfect stills photographer, perfect social media expert. They're few and far between, aren't they? Well, it's a lot. Is it time to rethink about the value of photography, the value of good video, the value of good writing as individuals? It's a lot. Disciplines. It is a lot of disciplines to cover. Um, But interestingly, there are a lot of the disciplines that I have covered. You know, I've done a lot of writing. I did all the writing for the um, the political campaign that I did. I did a lot of writing on my Flickr account before I moved over to my uh, website. Um, um, but if I asked you now, what would you say you were? What's your profession? A photographer. Right. Um, but, which has been my downfall sometimes, mm. I'm, I'm a photographer with an environmental, political agenda. Um, because I can't leave it alone. Mm. And I think sometimes I have not been commissioned, possibly, by a lot of the related organisations who are tied into the Welsh Government because I'm too political. Mm. Mm. Um, And this is a problem I have, again, with the organisations that are tied into the Welsh Government, maybe for funding. A lot of environmentalists have got... Their, their lips tied because you know you've got because to protect. Want the next gig yeah. well because you're protecting an income mm. um, whereas being you know independent I can say what I like I can mm. use my imagery for what I like I can associate it to you know any issue drop it anywhere I like mm. without any comeback apart from you know I'm answerable to myself or maybe I might lose out on a few jobs because I'm being too political. So on that point, how flexible are you on giving up copyright on your images? How flexible am I on giving up copyrights? Um, Because more and more, listening to some of the organisations and some of them I may recognise as well, uh, and these comms officers we're talking about, some of the default positions increasingly is to own all that content. Um, I've not really come across it. It's not been an issue as such. I mean, initially when I was doing more voluntary work to build up a portfolio, I didn't mind giving over a couple of the images um, for people to use as long as it was a charitable cause, as as long as it was championing social causes or environmental causes. That wasn't an issue whatsoever. But were you being explicit in terms of who owned that image? It's one thing to give use. Oh, I, I would always look for a credit, of course. Um, whereas now, it's funny, it's the, now the table, table's been turned and I'm implicitly or just trying to make a living out of photography, um, giving your photographs for free to people really kills the industry. <laughs> yeah, but it's extremely difficult for people trying to break into the marketplace um, I guess what I'm getting at, I, I, I completely agree. Um, there can, something needs to happen. There needs to be some kind of catalyst to, if we can do it in Wales, I think all the better. But I think just that appreciation of um, the effort, uh, the skill that can go into making a great photograph that makes someone want to use it. But it's one thing to agree use of an image, it's another. Because there can be a perception with some of these organisations that that image is now theirs to do freely 
what they will with it, whether it's on the web, whether it's print, whether it's a billboard poster. Yes, recently um, somebody got in touch with me on Twitter um, from an organisation, a European organisation. I forget where in Europe they were based, but um, they wanted to use a a photograph of mine from the Nantlesk open cast coal mining protest. Um, And it was about... Was that the one with the coffin? Yes, it was the moratorium that they were were heading towards on open-cast coal mining. And um, they had an article on that, and he wanted to use one of my photographs. He said, yeah, we'll give you full credit and everything on the photograph. Um, And I I said to them, you know, are you in a paid position yourself? Does the organisation have a structure of, you know, a wage structure? And the answers were yes. Well, as a token gesture for that image please pay me £40, much like you would do, to license an image. Mm. And he just turned around and said, well, I'm afraid we haven't got the budget for that. I said, you can't have the image, you know. And there did come a point where I did start to put my foot down and say, no, if you don't pay for that image, you can't use it. And, you know, and you give them a duration of time which you can use it for. Mm. But I refused to do that. Again, like I say, with the social documentation of you know, local protests and all the rest of it, I really didn't mind those images being shared around, used by them. You know, that, that's not an issue. Mm. It's when people are within a paid structure are, are making money out of that image. You know, that is the issue. Mm. I've heard of quite a few photographers say that, actually, that you know, they have discovered you know, their images in various places but they will only ever kick up a fuss if that image is actually making money for somebody else. But it is polite to ask, isn't it? I think this is why I'm asking. It's polite to well, ask it's more than for polite. multiple use. It's more than polite to ask. They should bloody ask. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. you know. But again, the trouble is with recession and times of, um, you know, we all know that, you know, we're, we are really still in a recession. The first thing that gets hit is the arts and design. I remember when I came out of college in 91, um, it was recession. You know, um, nobody within design was being paid sweet FA. Um, and desktop publishing had only just happened. Mm. You know, computers came in my second year in college. Mm. Yeah, we, we were doing everything by hand. Mm. So people would make the most of what they had rather than pay for it. And it's very much the same with photography, and it's still happening now. You will will see a lot of the environmental organisations making do with the photography that they do themselves. Or (laughs) the latest guys is uh, heading towards the universities and giving the students live briefs, as they're called, which basically means get a job done for free and pick the best student work. Yes, that is the other way to do it, or having photography competitions that relate to a current brief that they have, and they'll get loads of amateurs to send in photographs, and you waiver your rights to the photographs, Mm. and that's the other way to do it. Do you, you obviously um, still have this passion for the arts, do you keep sketchbooks? Sketchbooks? No, no, not at all. Mm. I mean, I, I loved life drawing. Me too. 
I absolutely loved it. And um, as soon as I got onto my foundation, no, my degree course, and it was probably three quarters of the way through my foundation, I then spent the rest of that quarter of term in the life drawing room, drawing with a biro on, you know, just art paper. And, um, but a biro, because it goes back to that white paper thing. You couldn't rub it out. So it was almost that, you know, manic drawing and, but then something would reveal itself and you start to see the form and structure within the lines and you start to emphasize those lines. Mm. It was the same with, um, yeah, my painting, I I painted with acrylic and ink, you know, and it was, you make the whole thing black with different colors and then you draw back the colors, you rub it away and you leave your true colors of black and then you put the colors back on top. I've always preferred that kind of revealing of mm. something um, working that way because it takes away the white page and I guess we were talking before we started because um, I was going to ask about influences but in terms of photography you tend to get out there and do your own thing um, you're not following a lot of other photographers no you've only recently taken an interest in photon mind you've only been going a year um, can you see that changing though? As you come across where your work is, pu- your photography is used, where it's published, you must be aware of your peers in terms of doing similar. I think work. as much as anything, it's just that I've been too busy in my own world, <laughs> you know, right. um, too busy with what I've just been doing myself. Mm. Um, you know, I barely have time between looking after children and doing self-employment to be kind of heavily looking into other people's work. I am beginning to look at other photographers more. I've been looking mostly at the Welsh photographers and I'm taking a lot more interest, you know. I've created a Welsh photographers list on my Twitter site, you know, because again, I really believe that fraternities need to promote each other. Mm. They need, especially in this age of social media, you know, there's, it's a very simple thing to do, mm. is to create a list of your fraternity on Twitter so you can dip into it and see what your fraternity is up to so you can help each other, promote each other's work. You know, it seems like an extremely logical thing to, to do for me. Because, again, on things like Facebook or Twitter, if you have that initial kind of promotion of, say, I don't know, two or three retweets, immediately that goes out to their followers. So you stand a lot more chance for that word to be disseminated a bit mm. further. Mm. So... It's a very basic thing to do, and it's it's a good kind of um, um, household maintenance, um, housekeeping thing to do, is to keep lists of groups of people so that you know what each other are up to and to promote what each other are up to. And yes, I will, I will kind of journey through my lists at different points according to what I'm doing, you know, and I might step out of my photography list for a while because I've got wrapped up in something else for a while. Mm. I still have that battle of, I don't want to be influenced by other people's work. Mm. You know, it's um, it's a funny thing. Um, Any interest in uh, going into, say, the universities to talk to a class around this genre of photography? You know, that, that, that blend of environmental nature and documenting events, whether activist or support events, around those those themes? 
What, as in visiting lecturers? Yes, yeah, talking to the students. Just... Oh, absolutely. I'd love to do You'd that. Love. I have no issue with doing that whatsoever. Um, I think, you know, practicing artists have got so much more to give to students than full time lecturers. Mm. Controversial, maybe, but um, I would completely advocate almost they're not being full time lecturers at all. I would rather that you have people who are trying to bridge the professional world after leaving their degree or MA or PhD, um, subsidizing that bridging gap by then going back to their college where they had their education and feeding back back into the new students because it's current. It's so much more current. There's so much more enthusiasm for what people are doing when it's that young, fresh, invigorated, I want to take the world on. You've got so much more to give. I came across too many tutors that had been within that institution and they were sat on a wage packet uh, and they were completely divorced from what was current. I don't think it's a great way to bring on new people into the workplace. Um, There's a real disconnect there. Um, what would what would be your um, having experienced it now recently yourself taking that decision to go full time photography? Um, any words of wisdom for the youngsters coming through, perhaps wanting um, to get into that field, particularly in the area that you to are. make sure you got an identity, mm-hmm. a very individual identity, because we all know that you know every other person these days is a photographer. It's been said many a time. Um, but you need your point of difference um, and to be as honest to yourself as possible. Um, be honest to your passion. You know, find your passion. If you haven't found your passion, spend some more time finding it first rather than throwing yourself into something that you don't believe in. Um, even if it means going off and getting a part-time job doing something completely different. Find your passion, find your honesty, find your integrity find your point of difference and I think that will come through in your work finally. It's the voice behind the photographs, you know, it's, it's kind of different and yeah, you know, as yet I've not been exhibited within the kind of work of say Diffusion Festival or things like that, you know, my work has not been up it doesn't quite fit that bill as yet. I need some more coherent documentary projects. Um, I did some really interesting work recently, actually, up in um, Merthyr, up the North Gurnos. I was working for uh, social sciences, um, the Cardiff and Bristol social science, science, science departments, and um, working with a poet, a writer, um, on the issues of... Um, isolation and loneliness up in the North Gurnus and the older generations. That was a fascinating project. It was a six-week project and we were up there a day a week for six weeks. And we were the front line of engagement on these issues, literally going into the community, engaging with the community and trying to discover narratives of isolation and loneliness. And you were photographing? I was photographing. I had a poet beside me and I had a writer beside me at the same time. So loaded with ethics, the whole project. It was incredible. But I found myself, you know, having these 
conversations with people for the first time of meeting them, whilst having to take their photograph, yeah, you're winning over the trust of these people to try to give you these narratives of isolation and loneliness whilst taking their photograph. That's a difficult engagement. Um, and we went on a bus journey and we were obviously expected to talk to people on the bus about these issues of isolation and loneliness. And I found myself, I couldn't do that. It just wasn't the right place. So I was just taking, looking for metaphors from the bus window itself, you know, with, with my 1.105 millimeter lens. And uh, some quite nice shots came out of that. I quite liked them. So I was looking for narratives of isolation and loneliness in the external landscape, then looking for narratives of isolation and loneliness, what caused it within the urban landscape, and then looking to the results of that isolation and loneliness and narratives of that within the old people's home. So it's just continually responding to metaphors within the landscapes and the environments to, you know, the contributors of what causes the breakdown of community at the end of the day. And... Welsh market towns have suffered massively on the breakdown of community, purely because people have, you know, lack of employment, the death of the local high street, politics, cuts, out-of-town shopping. All these things have broken down community. And community doesn't really exist if you haven't got visible community. You know, yeah, if you go into your local school and you walk there, if you go to your local high street and you walk there, um, you see people, don't you, on a regular basis. That's where community is built. It's that facial recognition, yeah, that pausing to stop to talk to people on a regular basis. A lot of what's happened in the name of economic growth is a breakdown of community. We don't see each other on a regular enough basis um, accidentally, you know, so when you reflect on Bilth Wells, were you? Oh, absolutely. Up? I mean, Bilth Wells, that? again, you know, it had a vibrant high street when I was a young lad. And then when a supermarket came to Merthyr, my mum would drive 35 miles and do a big shop every two weeks rather mm. than mm. go to the local high street. And that has happened all over Wales. Yeah. So is Bilth now a showcase town just in terms of the one big event annually? It, it, I mean, the Royal Welsh Show has always been, you know, a big income for Bilth, mm. a seasonal income for Bilth. But it used to survive in its own merits. It had 13 pubs. Mm. There's probably three, four, maybe now. It had four butchers. It had greengrocers. It had a toy shop. It had an eyemongers. It had everything that you wanted on the local high street. Um, but a lot of that has gone Um even though the population is shot up, you know, development all around it, you know, but it's a bit of a retirement place, like a lot of Welsh marketplaces. Cardiff is a massive drain on Wales. <laughs> it's a massive drain on Wales because everybody feels as though they've got to come here to get educated or to get jobs, you know, especially within the arts or media or house prices in Cardiff keep going up. Yeah, you look to Bridgend or anywhere else like that, all the house prices are on the, in the opposite direction. Again, this comes back to, you know, local economy. You know, if, if all your economy is in your one main city, everywhere else is going to suffer. Um, you know, local economies need to be kept and preserved in these Welsh market towns. You know, so people like myself, I would dearly love to live back in Bilf, 
bumble around that ecology with my camera, recording it, selling it, you know, um, that would be my dream, you know, and to see that river, its ecology restored to at least how it was when I was seven years old. Um, to go back to that and revisit that, ah, oh, be beautiful, you know, and that is what Wales should be. It should be all these lovely little macro economies, almost self-serving, you know, having growth on their doorstep, having food grown on their doorstep, having their renewables, community energy, you know, mixed combined renewables around each market town, supplying that town first, so that immediate community gets the benefit of it first, and then surplus goes to grid. Yeah, it's the whole micro um, micro smart grid scenario where you've got lots of little micro grids which are interconnected. And when you've got abundance in one place, it's distributed to a place of low abundance. So how can your photography help that? How can my photography help that? Help or inform well, that change? I generally try to, yeah, that's more the, I think that's more the social media comms side of things is keeping promoting that aspect and I've come personally I've come around to the aspect where I don't support any one political party anymore I've become very probably apolitical um, or politically neutral um, and I will support any politician that's making the right noises in the right direction because I think party politics is half our problem I think um, you know what's caused our environmental issues and climate change is that very short-term political stance. You know, this is the good thing about the Future Generations Act. It's meant to transcend political terms. You've got this main backbone of principles that goes right through to the next generation rather than it just changing completely every five years on political terms. Yeah, we all know it. Every time you change your political leadership in a council, for example, the first thing they do is go around and change everything that the last party did. I mean, how much money is wasted doing that time and time and time again? I personally believe that if you haven't got environmental sustainability underpinning everything, you haven't got anything. Yeah, because... if. If that is not, if your if your environment's not supporting you, and has nothing left to give you, what are you left with? You know, nothing works, does it? You know, the the whole ethos of a circular economy is based on sustainability. You know, the whole kind of repair industry, the recycle industry. You know, but we're fixated with recycle. Well, we shouldn't be fixated with recycle. We should be fixated with repair and reduce. You know, so in amongst those aims and aspirations, uh, I guess the upcoming just ending on the roundhouse um, sort of project and initiative that you're involved in, um, that you mentioned earlier, do you see that as a, an opportunity to to build your own is that your own studio, if you like? It's completely been my own studio. Yeah, I mean, we um, put in instated four ponds into the barley field. When we bought the barley field, it was a compacted barley field. It was completely eroded run, rain would run off it clay soil you know nothing there whatsoever but as we worked that barley field in the first year put those ponds in oh my god watch that nature move back in mm. you know the dragonflies that came back in the damselflies the bees the pollinators the small mammals um 
they flooded back in you know and it's that whole make a space for nature you make a space for it and it just it clambers to get back in you know if you uh, have you listened to the chris tancock episode on photon yes i did the yeah. two the two-parter yeah um i mean he's made it his mission over the last what 10 years or whatever to follow the Dowrog project are we going to see that as a project from you do you think with the woodland areas in terms of a following or tracking that change or have you been doing that i've already been doing it yeah, yeah i mean i've i've made sure that i've kept albums separate albums in my work uh, dedicated to the woodlands and the barley field um i think initially the, the, what was it the um paper uh, the ely paper mill site um i knew it was going to be developed down here um, in Canton, and this was back in 2011. That was another thing that brought me back to photography was that campaign, actually, because I would go around and photograph what was wrong in the community and put it up on social media and go, you cannot deny this. This is a photograph. <laughs> so you were, that, you were that pain in the arse then that would uh, get totally. in the face of councillors. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I was. And I was, you know, I was patted on the back by my opposition and said, you ran a bloody good campaign mm. considering we were nowhere at that stage anyway and the paper mill site um um the ecology was fantastic there it was completely left it was covered with buddleia and brambles and all sorts it was left to go wild and I, I went over there one day and photographed what was there in macro and there was an abundance of stuff there and but i did it because i knew they were going to strip it all away mm. and put it back to housing which they're in the process of doing now on a floodplain that whole aspect of you know what's been lost what can you do to help regain it and then document what's been moved back in mm. and showing what short periods of time these things happen over it's incredible i mean i think it's bonkers that in 40 years 80 percent anecdotally from my own account and i know it's right 80 percent of that river ecology has disappeared in 40 years i mean you know nationally saying that nearly half of your mammals and birds and things have disappeared globally yeah in that period of time so you know by the time my children are my age what's left for them mm. shocking it's hideous there is so much you can do locally to encourage wildlife, yeah. Um, but it's never top of political agenda to do that because it's not about power, it's not about loads of money, but what it is about is sustainable community resilience. And that's hugely lacking. <laughs>